Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Hello and welcome to the 2022 season of The Protagonistas. It is such an honor to be in this space and it is such an honor that you've chosen to journey with me in this space, friends. Whether you just learned about this podcast or have hung out here for a while, while it's grown from a little dream with terrible audio to still a dream but with a little bit better audio and a partnership with Chasing Justice, which by the way, you should totally check out at ChasingJustice.com. But y'all, do I have a treat for you on this very first episode of 2022. Today you'll get to hear from Candice Benbow, Red Lip Theologian Extraordinaire. Today is actually the release day of her new book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Make sure to check out my Instagram for a chance at a giveaway of this book. But y'all, it is so good. For one, I've never read a Christian book that is this funny and real and raw and heartbreaking and vulnerable and just so honest. And I'll be real, this book wasn't written for me. As I mentioned in the episode, it's a love letter to black women. It is a feast for a younger generation of black women who were raised in hip hop culture and the church, who love womanist theology but may not always feel like it speaks to them. Candace offers every ounce of who she is to the theological table and dares that we do the same. She offers an image of God that is more than our wildest dreams, and I fell way more in love with the red lip theology God. And I so hope you do too. So thank you for joining me, and please do enjoy this new episode and prepare for an incredible new year of conversations and interviews and reflections thereof that I hope challenge and empower and move you to a more liberating and liberative Christianity. So, welcome to The Protagonistas. Okay, so Candice, thank you so much for chatting with me today um, about your new book, which this episode is going to release on release day of your book. So you're my Yay! first guest. Yay! And yeah, my first guest of the of the year and also on your <clears throat> release day, which I'm super, super, super pumped about. So yes, yeah, so I just want to say, first of all, thank you for writing this book. As I mentioned to you a little while ago, I know this book wasn't written for me. It's a love letter to Black women, but I just felt like man, just being able to like peek in. I think you kind of mentioned this in your book, like eavesdropping, you know, like I'm just kind of like sitting there like, all right. Um, But it was really like, I felt so privileged and honored to be able to just do that. And so, yeah, no, thank you for for writing this and for just that opportunity. Um, So I'm going to ask you like a ton of questions, not a ton, but I'll ask you some questions. I like to just read a quote and then have you like elaborate on that quote. That's typically how I do it. 
But before I start, I always ask my guests to share about their spiritual background, which I know this is what you do in your book. And you're sort of like reflecting on your spiritual background and also like reclaiming it and then rewriting it or, you know, doing a whole bunch of stuff. All of those things. All of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your spiritual background and then maybe a quick summary and how you got to where you are now in writing Red Lip Theology. Yeah, so I was born and raised in the Black Baptist Church. I have always felt connected um, to God and to spirit in deep and meaningful ways that always felt beyond the church. Like I was telling someone um, how I used to have these dreams and they would be about people who had either passed on or people who were still living. And I would go to my mom and I would be I would tell her about this these dreams and she would tell me to go back to sleep and pray, like and ask God to prepare to make clear whatever lesson or whatever um, God was trying to tell me through them. I always stay really close to my grandmother, my grandfather, the older people in my family, and was and always listened when they talked about family members that had passed on. Mm. I always had a deep reverence for Black culture and Black faith, particularly the articulation of Black faith that sustained my enslaved ancestors. Like, I always felt like there had to be something amazingly special and powerful about the prayers that they were praying Right. To enable them to endure that and believe that it wouldn't be like that always. Right. And so those that, that kind of grounded me in a way that has still sustained me. And now, you know, as a as an adult woman, I I am constantly trying to work to make sense of my life and the world around me. And I cannot do that at all without a firm spiritual grounding. And so my relationship with the divine, my relationship with God, my faith, I always say my faith is rooted in three things, the teachings of Jesus, the wisdom of my ancestors and the power of black womanhood. And all of those things really are what compel me to write Relic Theology because I was like, I my generation of, of black women, of, of faith-filled black women needed voices that talk about how okay it is to work to develop your own relationship with God. Mm. Um, Because, and I mean, you know this, um, Christian publishing is very white. And even when it's very white, it's also very white male. Um, And as black women, like their research articles, their studies that talk about black women being the most religious demographic in America, but yet we don't, we are not, at the forefront of those conversations. Right. And as a theologian, I wanted I wanted my generation of black women 
to have voices that were at the forefront. I want us to know that it's also possible to think differently about God. It's possible to ask questions Mm -hmm. and not be considered outside of faith, a falling away. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can be deeply faithful and also be a critical thinker Mm -hmm. and somebody who who brings that lens and that authenticity to their faith relationship. And that really is what really is what brought me to write Real Theology. So good. Um, And I think, you know, you do such a profound job of making theology personal, right? And like, and yeah, and in that wrestling, like, look, this is how I got to this. This is what made me think about this. And this doesn't make sense. And that's what I love that you, so much of it is just like, yeah, this is what I was told, but this doesn't make sense. And mm-hmm. I love that because I feel like that's so much of um, what I wrestle with when I wrestle with theology. You know, I'm like, this doesn't match up to the lived experience, to my lived experience, to the lived experience of my grandmother, right? Like in Abuelita Faith, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm like, you know, y'all told me that it's like this, mm-hmm. but this is not what I saw growing up. Like this was not my life growing up. And so I love that you sort of just uh, maybe not start, but like a baseline. Um, what I received is like common sense and critical thinking, as you mentioned. And I, I love that. Yeah. And also lived experience, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. because that's key to doing theology um, and theologizing. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you my next question I wanted to ask about. So the book is sort of centered on your mom, right? And just her life as a theologian, really. And I wanted to ask about her. But first, because we're sort of talking about theology, I loved like, it's, I think it's in the beginning of the book, a story you share about some like white guy in class who he comes up to you and he's like, so like, do you consider yourself a black theologian or are you a regular theologian? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where you like came up with this, like, I'm a red lip theologian. <laughs> I just love that story. Can you just share a little bit about that? And, you know, I know you did share a little bit about red lip theology, but just that moment of like naming it, because there's so much power in that naming. And then also like, you know, if you want to share a little bit more about like, well, what is red lip theology? Yeah. I mean, you're so right. There's, there's something to naming. And the fact that I was trying to be petty is even, is <laughs> right. even more funny, right? It's like, <laughs> I did not want to have a conversation with him at all. Like had been successfully avoiding having a conversation with him. And then he pulls up literally right. and now I have fucked him. Um, and when I said that I was a red lip theologian and gather my things, I remember like sitting in my car, like, wait, that makes sense. <laughs> and, so and, and the truth is, is that even as, and I talk about this a bit in the book, even as I was coming, I was being much more steeped into womanist theology. There was the understanding for me and the realization for me that womanist theology didn't necessarily feel like it embodied me and Mm -hmm. my experience. And that like, I was somebody who was very clear that all of these complicated parts of me could live in synergy and in harmony and they Mm -hmm. were holy. Mm -hmm. And I felt like part of why, part of why, womanist theology did not feel like it articulated my experience is largely because women in my generation weren't the scholars who were writing, right? Mm -hmm. 
the older women were writing, but then there were those who were my age who had begun to write that felt like they were still writing in the same vein as previous iterations of womanist theologians, which was very different than generations of Black feminist writers, right? That like, we can chart the various waves of feminism and the various waves of Black feminism and how and how conversations, the needle moved. And I wasn't, I didn't see that in the conversations that I was having in classes around womanist theology. That was part of it. Right. But then the larger part was the fact that I was having these conversations in academic spaces was also the other issue. Women's theology is a very classed conversation. Like, even though it is a an understanding and an articulation of Black women's faith, mm-hmm. the majority of Black women who are faith-filled cannot access it. Mm, And so, you know, like you got to be in grad school or you got to have, have a pastor who is in tuned in these spaces very much to even be, to even know, to have these conversations and who to bring and all of those things. And so for me, as I became clearer that I wanted the room for womanist theology to include me, I also became clear that that inclusion also required access, various access points. Right. And I, I'll never forget one of my, I got a, I also have a master's in sociology and my advisor at the time, Dr. Wortham, he said, never get education for education's sake. Like, when you are in these rooms and when you are in these spaces, you're not just there for yourself and you're there to do something. And for me, I was like, okay, I want to talk about God and I want to talk about black women and God and black women with black women in the spaces where black women are. And I could care less if these old white men in the academy don't think I'm smart. Like, I'm not writing to you. I don't care what you think, right? I know that I have to play the game to get the credential. Right. But ultimately, I want to talk to sisters. <laughs> and so it became very clear, like, what what does that look like? Um, so that was a long way to answer that question. Well, was- <laughs> but yeah, but, um, and I was like, yeah, like I, it gave me naming it, made it real to me and then I had to sit and be like okay so what is relative theology and I was like it's the lens through which I see and understand myself as a millennial black woman of faith like Mm -hmm. I am as formed by the church as I am formed by hip-hop culture Mm -hmm. like I am as churched as I am ratchet like I I am both a Christian and a Black feminist. I am as Christian as I am feminist, right? And so relative theology gave room for the nuances of, I'm also, I mean, part of, part of hip hop culture is this brash, unapologetic 
in your face that sometimes elders, regardless of what of who they are, want a certain level of respect and deference. Mm-hmm. That hip hop taught me to say, like, well, do you deserve this? <laughs> like, like just because you old don't mean that you, you know, like I like that I can still hold you accountable and hold people accountable to harms. And so yeah, that's for that's what it is for me. It's how I see the world and how I interrogate the way that I'm supposed to move and treat the people that I love and I care about and how I'm supposed to engage in justice work. Like I'm supposed to take all, and I think we all are, supposed to take the complexities and nuances of our personal lived experiences and use them to fuel the ways that we change the world for the better. I just, I believe that. And so for me, relative theology is a way that I'm really trying to, to walk through and do that. That's so good. I think that there is a, a holy and sacred audacity to, to that, to standing in, in that and saying, yeah, I was just as much shaped by the church as I was by hip hop culture. I think that that's, um, again, that's real and that's raw and that's our lived experiences. And I think that that's that intersection where I think we really, really meet God, right? Like not just like, 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 that's the thing. Like, I remember, going into Bible studies, I remember recording, this is one of like, I just knew my mama was gonna like give me up or like throw me away, like tell me like I gotta live somewhere else. There's this song by Yolanda Adams, this gospel song called Through the Storm. It was her first single, Yolanda Adams' first single. My mother loved that song. That was also at the same time, an R&B group called Jodeci. And they had a song called Freaking You. Mm-hmm. And I love that song. <laughs> and my mama had recorded Yolanda Adams' song on her, uh, what's she call it? I accidentally, when I came home from school, recorded over it, Jodeci's Freaking You. <laughs> and so, like, when I got, when my mama got home and wanted to play that, and I went in the room and act like I had no idea what <laughs> like that honestly is the best way to just to distill what it was like for me like and the fact that like my mom and I and I talk about it in the book we are so opposite in so many different ways and I think that was the perfect like she listening to Yolanda Jesus will hold you through the storm and I'm listening to Devontae saying I want to freak you and like, like my mom is just like what have I raised? <laughs> and, like, and so it, you know, I, I think if we don't bring the complexities, our individualities to our faith experience, we rob ourselves because it's almost like, why would I hide or deny who I am to the creator who made me? Mm, yes. He, God knows who I am. Right. I made me the way that I am. I'm supposed to bring all of that. Now, the truth is, when I bring my full self, when I bring my whole self, I get to look at me and be like, okay, now in this particular area, I'm going to need right. you to get together because you, you slipping. You know, <laughs> as my grandma was like, you slipping, showing. Like, but you can't do that 
unless you have allowed your in the entirety of yourself to stand in the light of truth. And I think that that's just where I am. And that's what I aim to get through and to, and to share as I talk about and write, you know, anything, but especially with the book. Right. Right. That's so good. Yeah. I think about that a lot too, is just how, you know, whiteness and patriarchy and colonial, you know, ideology, colonialism doesn't know what to do with complexity. Like it doesn't know what to do with like both and, and like, you know, because we live in such a dualistic, such Mm -hmm. a binary world that you, you know, you can't be Christian and, or you can't be, you know, like black feminist and, or you can't be, you have to be one or the other. And so I do, I think that you do just an incredible job of just mixing all of that up for us and bringing your full self, uh, as you mentioned. And to that, I actually do have a quote that I, I highlighted that I wanted to read that fits with that perfectly. So you, you wrote, I must be myself. I am righteous, ratchet, intelligent, sensitive, sensual, spiritual, and ambitious. God meets me where I am in whatever state I'm in and gives me what I need. The least I can do is give myself the same. And I love so much that how you not only, you know, say that, yeah, God meets me there, but like, wait a minute, I need to do that to myself because not only do we think that God doesn't do that, you know, not only are we like separating that from God, but we're also turning that around on ourselves and like feeling shame for those things. And you even say, um, there was actually a line that it felt so obvious, but when I read it in your book and in the context of which you wrote it, I literally like, I, like, I, well, I didn't close the book. So I don't have a physical copy on me, but um, like, I literally was like, I stopped and I was like, I'm going to sit with that all day. And you wrote, God doesn't expect, expect us to be anything more than what we are. God expects us to be human. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that because it really does remind me of so much of what I've been wrestling with when I wrote Abuelita Faith, particularly when it comes to the Bible, right? Yeah. Um, talking about this idea of like women who are ratchet and holy and like all of these things. I mean, that's what you see in the women in the Bible. Yeah. Like, they're doing all sorts of, you know, things to survive, right? And it's yeah. this sort of... um what I call Walita Faith, the theology of survival. And I saw that so much in what you were talking about. Um, And to continue what you said, God doesn't expect perfection from us. And yet we place that expectation on ourselves. And then you keep going. And when we can't live up to the unrealistic expectations, mountains of guilt and shame descend upon us, and we can't see ourselves beyond our failures. I thought that that was um, so good. And so again, real and so raw. And so do you want to talk a little bit about that and just how you came to embrace that in yourself and also in, in the divine, you know, in that meeting you where you're at, including you meeting yourself where you're at. Yeah. It's so funny because I I began to think a lot about that because one of the things that I hate that people say, and I understand why we say it, but it grinds my gears when people are get caught up in something and they say, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes nobody said you were perfect (laughs) like that's not that's not what we are like you don't have to say that you are not perfect we are all imperfect what you need to do is hold yourself accountable to what you did and how what you did hurt somebody that's what you're supposed to do right um but at the same at the same time I really thought about what it meant to grow up 
as a young girl full of insecurity and anxiety with not even knowing that it was anxiety, but full of insecurities because my dad wasn't there and full of insecurities because I felt like I wasn't good enough. And all of the ways that society places expectations on girls and women and how I carried all of those like backpacks Mm. and then was still trying to navigate this like life of possibility for myself. Mm. And when I, when I made a mistake as people do, as we will all do, because I did not live up to one, this expectation of perfection that society placed on me that wasn't realistic anyway. And because I didn't live up to this mythical expectation of perfection that I had in my own head, I would, I would be so incredibly evil to myself. Mm. I would think so low of myself. Like, how could you do that? Like, you can't, you can't do it. Like, it didn't matter if I didn't hear that kind of talk from other people. Right. I internalized it from myself. And then there came a moment where I began to like, say like, okay, if scripture is true, if God loves me with an everlasting love, if at every point in in creation, at every point during creation, God kept looking back and saying, this is good. Mm. If the entire arc of the, of the biblical narrative is about how much God loves me. Right. Why can I not lean into that? Mm. Yeah. You know, like, like it was just, to me, it stared me in my face of like, all right, God created me to be human. God created me with, with emotions, with, and it was, it was good. Like it was not, I'm not supposed to, I'm not a Christian that, that negates the flesh, right. That, that suggests that my emotions are somehow demonic and I have to die to them. Like I have a right to feel what I feel I have a responsibility to always move to the highest good and the best version of myself, but I get to feel how I feel. Right. And I just, I remembered there was a point where I was like, okay, I'm doing all this work as a sociologist and as a writer to push marginalized communities to continue to realize their potential and their brightness and their capacities I need to realize that for myself. Yeah. And I hope, I think that's the best word I had. I genuinely, genuinely hope that in any iteration of my work, that people, especially women, get that. Yeah. Because I think too often we are presented with so much that makes it so easy for us to doubt ourselves Mm -hmm. and to blame ourselves Mm -hmm. and to war 
against our own possibilities. Mm. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want other women to do that. And so I hope, I hope that my work moves people to that, to that Mm. space. I do. Yeah. I think you're definitely pointing um, particularly, of course, Black women, but you're pointing really all of us toward liberation. Um, and I think that that's definitely the, where we need to be headed. Um, and I love how you mentioned the Genesis one, because I always say that, you know, folks, a lot of evangelicals, they'll read the Bible and they sort of act like if the story starts at Genesis three, right? Like it starts at the fall and it doesn't start. No, it starts at Genesis one, where it starts that we are good and that creation is good. Um Yeah. And that makes me think, I love how your book that you, through personal story, I mean, you really get into like so many theological topics. I mean, you talk about creation care and, you know, so many things. And one of the things that I I thought was so interesting when I read it, and I just loved how you um, wrestled with free will. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that you said something that I was like, Ooh, I need to think about that for a really long time. You talk about how Eve um, in taking a bite of the, you know, the, the fruit or whatever that Eve might say that taking a bite was the best decision that she ever made. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about that in light of free will. Um, And then I'll just quote you here. When you talk about free will, it says it's this God given ability to make choices. It allows us to find out who we truly are. But free will doesn't only do something for us. I believe it also does something for God. Free will holds God accountable to God's word. I thought that was so good and such an interesting take an interesting reading and interpretation of that. Can you talk to me a little bit about, yeah, like your idea of free will and how that allowed you to sort of step into who you are? Yeah, like I, so part of that was um, I had to do a lot of work around choices that were made for me and my experiences with trauma and and people making decisions that harmed me. Mm. Um, Some of it I do talk about in the book um, about being a survivor of sexual assault. And then as Black women, and as, I don't even have to qualify that as Black women, but as girls and women globally, experience violence yeah gender-based violence and often the question is where is god Mm. and why didn't god stop it right i had to really wrestle with what free will is and what it means for us and what agency means Mm. to us and so um I'm a. I'm going to mess up his name, his last name. I think it's Alul, E L L U L, Jackalul. He wrote to this day. It is my favorite book that I read oh. in seminary. Okay. He wrote the politics of God and the politics of man, mm-hmm. and it is a study on Second Kings, mm. and it's basically about the moment. Where, you know, Israel is like, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Like, you yeah. you got us following you, but we want to be like everybody else. Right. We want a king. And so God lets them have a king. Right. And the book really is about, it's a text in political theology. And what I loved about my, my OT professor, 
he had us read it and it was right before the election because mm-hmm. I think it was right before we elected Obama for a second mm-hmm. time. The The point of the book and even the point of what Chabs had us to, to work through is like troubling this notion that God chooses a leader, mm-hmm. right? So that like God wanted Obama to win or God wanted McCain to win. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. Like that it's not that. It is that the people have the ability right. to govern themselves and there are implications in that, mm-hmm. right? But but it it was so helpful to me because I was already groping for language around free will and why God allows things. Mm -hmm. And, and it gave me room and space to be like, no, like it's not about God allowing. Cause I think that when we use those kind of words, it it also is about trying to make pain productive. And I'm not one of those people. Mm -hmm. Like I don't try to make pain and trauma productive so it's not about god allowing but it is the fact that we have choices right and those choices have implications and some people call them consequences but i like to use implications rather than consequences i'll talk about that in the book too Mm -hmm. but but when you make the choices when you choose However close you are, I believe, to the light and to your authentic, honest self will determine whether you make choices that are harmful to other people mm-hmm. or whether they are, are ones that allow all of us to live in freedom and liberation. Mm-hmm. And what I learned to be true is that people who are not rooted close to the light and people who are not rooted in a great sense of themselves will make decisions that are harmful. Mm. And they are make they make decisions that create and manifest evil. Yeah. And it is not so much about God stopping it. Like I do believe that there are instances when people are like, God saved my life, or God said, like I believe those things happen. Right. It's not my job to figure out why that time and why not that time like scripture says like who can know the mind of you know what i'm saying like so it's not about that for me right what it is is when we experience the evil and the atrocities of this world do we have a god who journeys with us through the darkness. Right. And for me, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Like when I think about Eve, you know, I think about the fall very differently. And maybe, and, and again, this is what it means to bring your whole self to your faith. My question going to be, well, if they couldn't eat the fruit, why you put, why you put the tree there? Like, like I mean, to me, that's a, to somebody else. That question may never come up. It may be, I'm not going to eat it because God told me not to eat it. So it doesn't matter. God could put 50 trees. And if God said, don't eat them, they're going to walk past them and not do it. That ain't never been made. 
my mama told me I had to do something. I did it. <laughs> so, like, I did. So me, God say, you can have all it is. Just don't touch that. Then my question gonna be, well, God, what you put it there right there for? What? Like, I might be sleepwalking one day and just pick something. How am I supposed to know that that wasn't the tree that I was supposed to pick from? If you move it away from me, then you don't even have to worry about instructing me in that way. Like some people that may not, you know, but I also know that there have been times where I made a decision to do something that may not have been the best decision that I could have made, but I can see how every other thing that happened in my life that was that opened my eyes or created opportunity came as a result of that. Right. right? So, so there is the possibility that I'm going to get to glory and Eve is going to say, girl, I read that chapter and I, I do not agree. I, it was a mistake and I shouldn't have eaten it. <laughs> then there's a very real possibility that Eve is going to be like, thank you. Thank you. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> because God was tripping. It was my first mistake and I got kicked out. Like I thought people got three strikes. You know what I'm saying? Like the point of that entire exploration was how do we honor the fact that we have been gifted with the beauty and the power to make choices Mm. and to be self-determinant. When I read Genesis, And the instructions that God gave Adam and Eve, it's not just about like, it's not even about dominion, but it is about creating a life. When you look at at Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it's hard sometimes to get through those passages, but these are people who have have now been free Mm -hmm. and they're trying to work through what it looks like to now live in freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And so they are setting up political structures and rules and things for their life. If you choose to move, if you choose to make a decision against these, these are the consequences, right? Like, and I think that sometimes too often we miss the beauty of that Mm -hmm. because we say things like, well, I'm just waiting to see what God say. Mm God might be waiting to see what you're going to say. Right, right. You know, and, and or to say, I can trust myself to make a decision. I remember I said that to my therapist. Uh, it was before I was writing this. I was like, I want to I wanna learn how to trust myself again to make these particular decisions. And I want to be okay that even if the decision is not, what I thought it would be. Mm. If the outcome of the decision is not what I thought it would be, I want to have honored myself enough that I open myself up to welcome what I can learn from myself as a result of the outcome being different than what Mm. I initially expected. I think we learn God in real and beautiful ways as a result of that. I really, really do. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that just speaks to what it means to be human and what it means to survive in a world, particularly, you know, as women or as women of color, to survive in a world that's not necessarily, you know, made for us, uh, for our flourishing. Um, And so I think that, yeah. And in that, you know, God is intimately in every single one of those details in all of those bad, quote unquote, bad decisions or quote unquote wrong or whatever. Um, But in that figuring it out in that day to day, just figuring out how to survive and how to, you know, be a human. There was actually also a a part where you talk about the woman caught in adultery. And I love how you also kind of wrestled with that passage you said, and it very much speaks to this. You said it's Jesus's command to quote, go and sin no more. That reminds us we have the capacity to be better than who we have been. The sin Jesus asked the woman caught in adultery to abandon is whatever enabled her to believe and act differently than what she now knew to be true, that she was worthy of full, whole, and complete love. When we've healed those parts of us, we can't go back and do as we did before. And I thought that that was such a beautiful, liberative way of reading um, that passage. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and just how you even maybe just your framework for a lot of these ways of reading these passages, which are, are so liberating uh, when the Bible, and I'm a huge Bible nerd. So I love it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, when I read the Bible, like I, in the same way, I want to find the ways that these are liberating and not um, oppressive and the way they've been. Yeah. Yeah. Part of that was me. I mean, me working through the implications and the fallout from a a terrible decision um, that I made, which was to start a relationship with someone who's married. And the pain and the hurt of when he chose to marry someone else and start a relationship with someone else and kind of like just abandon and drop me. There's a stuff that, you know, society puts on you as another woman that's like, oh, well, you deserve that because you shouldn't have done that part of that shame you carry yourself. But then the truth of it is, is that if you want to be free and if you want to be whole and if you want to heal the parts of you that enabled you to be in that relationship in the first place, it requires some work and some truth telling, as we keep saying, on your part. And um, I remembered, like, there were days where I sat and I would just read that scripture over and over and over and over and over again. And then part of what helped me was her name is Dr. Verona Smiles. And I don't know where she is now, but at the time she was teaching at Wake Forest Divinity School. And um, she preached at my church and she preached her, the woman who uh, was caught. And she named her Jessica. I'll never forget that. Mm. And that was for me, I came out of that one with the commitment that I would always name unnamed women in scripture Mm. um, when I preached or when I taught them. But it also meant that every woman had a story. Like Mm. Jessica had a story. She came from somewhere, right? And so when I thought of me, in that moment, I thought of Candace and being stood up in front of people. Cause at a moment, that's exactly what it felt like and what it looked like. And Jesus saying like, all right, so all of y'all that ain't never done nothing. Like y'all take the first crack at it. Right. And then all of them walking away. And then Jesus looking at me and being like, don't do this mess again. Mm. 
And it's not just when, when I was in therapy and when I was talking with friends, it's not just, oh, I will never date somebody who is married. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the easy part. Yeah. Like the easy part is to all, and even if your situation was never that you was different than you being in, in a relationship with someone who's married, it's always easy for you to say, oh, I'll never do that again. Like the, whatever it was, Right. the harder work is to say, what led me right. to do that? What led me here? Because if you don't deal with what led you there, mm-hmm. you're just going to replace the action with another action, right? Like, so what? It may be that I never dated another married man, but I kept getting out. What it would it look like if I was in a string of relationships with single men who are equally as harmful? Right, right. Like I just replaced it with one thing, with something else. And when I looked at that text and when I began to really unpack what Jesus was saying, it was like, go and sin no more. Like, you got to do some real work, mm-hmm. you know? It's just like when he when he saw the woman at the well, like, he like, sis, ain't none of these men your husband. <laughs> and part of that is like him saying to her, you are in community with people who don't really care about you. Mm. Like, they are taking from you. Right. But if you need them, they have no obligation to you. And part of that work then means to be like, okay, what what is happening that's attracting me to these kinds of situations? What's happening that's attracting me to these kind of environments and drawing those parts of me in? And I had to deal with a lot of, I had to deal with a lot of it of like, oh, a lot of this is rooted in in my relationship with my father and my non-existent relationship with my father. A lot of it is rooted in believing that I'm this age and I don't have this husband and 2.5 kids and all of a sudden, you know, like all of that. And I really had to sit and be like, okay, none of that is here. None of that is, you have it. Your father is not going to ever do what you want your dad to do. How can you be whole? Right. It's like, when Jesus is like, are you, do, do you want to be made whole? Like, do, do you want it? Because you can have it, but it's going to take some work. And so that was for me the moment of just like, yeah, like you've got to be committed mm-hmm. to doing, to going beneath the surface mm-hmm. to really get to the heart of the things in you that cause you to betray what's true and what's true is that you're loved by God, Mm -hmm. that you are always whole and sufficient and that at every moment, even in your worst moments, you're more than enough. And, you know, I think people, so we have these words, process theologian, process theology, the, the gritty nuts and bolts is that God is impacted by the world as much as 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 the world is impacted by God and it makes God this dynamic ever changing evolving even as God is constant right like i was so drawn to that like i was so drawn to this idea that God did not have to be this old granddaddy <laughs> 
in the sky that is a curmudgeon <laughs> that you know is just tired of all these kids making all this noise right but like but that god is that god is interested mm. in in the decisions i make that god is interested in in the ways that i want to craft out a life and that god and spirit shapeshift to become what I need Mm -hmm. in those moments, right? To become whatever it is that I need. I I thought that that was a much healthier way to look at God and to understand God. My mama used to say that God is bigger than the 66 books, Mm -hmm. which was her way of saying God is still speaking and God is still moving in the world. And I don't, I, we never had the conversations about process theology because, because that wasn't where, you know, we were, but in many ways, I think that, I think that those are process thoughts Yeah. that even, even if people don't have the language, they are talking about a God who moves and is moved mm. while staying constant and being consistent. And I think that Approaching scripture and approaching my relationship with God in that way has been really, really helpful to be like, no, God, like God is the unmoved mover, like that mm-hmm. God, God moves and shapeshifts and, and spirit is fluid enough to meet me and feel cracks and crannies and crevices. And I, I think often no decision I make catches God by surprise because God is, I believe God is all knowing and knows all of the decisions that we, all of the options and the range. Cause we don't know, mm-hmm. but there are parts times that I think God is like, that was interesting. Like mm-hmm. it may mean that she might have to go around that corner a little longer than has she made this decision. But because of who I am and because of God, who God created me to be, God even knows and understands why I make those decisions. Mm. And and just was a much freer, lighter way to see God and to see the ways that I'm supposed to move in the world. Right. God is interested and God is moved. That is like a whole sermon right there for sure. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I even see that, as you mentioned, like in scripture. I mean, I think about the the Canaanite mother who you know encounters Jesus and she essentially talks back and Jesus is like oh you're right you know and I I see that in so many interactions in the Bible where where even like the the daughters of Zelophehad you know they're like hey we didn't get our you know we didn't get our lands like we didn't get you know it was supposed to be for for the guys and they're like yeah well our father doesn't have any sons. So why don't we get it? And God's like, Oh, true. Okay. I'll change the law, you know? Right. Um, right. And so right. you see that in the Bible, you see this God that is interested and is moved and is willing to be moved. Right. And is willing to be willing to be moved. I love right. that. Yes. And I just love how you frame that in uh, your own story in decisions that you've made that maybe you might not be proud of or decisions that you made that you learned something from about yourself. And I think that there is so much freedom in that. There is so much freedom and so much beauty in that because as we've been talking about, you know, we are human and God expects us to be all of that, <laughs> you know, yeah, to be that. Yeah. Right. Okay. My last question, and this is 
mainly because your whole book is really structured around your relationship with your mom and the theologian that your mom was, as I mentioned. And so I can't not ask you about your mom and have you share a little bit about her. And, and I want to read this, this quote that you say, and then if you want to just share a little bit about more about it, um, you talk about how if you, if you were to think of God in human form, it would be your mom. And then you say, I, I think if we describe God with the human attributes of the person who's cared for us the most in this life, our renderings would look different from the God given to us. Perhaps that's the point. When God wrapped God's self in brown flesh and became Jesus, divinity came in a form no one expected or initially appreciated. Maybe God is to be that personal to us. Christ, who is both God's son and God's self, challenged the way the people of his time understood what God could look like. We must have the courage to do the same. And I thought that that framing that within the idea of courage, I think is just um, exactly how it should be framed. It was so perfect and beautiful. And so I'd love to, for, you know, for listeners, and, and I'd love to hear more about your mom, what um, she was like, and if you could expand on this beautiful idea of having the courage to challenge our notions of who God is or what God looks like. Uh, my mom was the absolute best person I know. And I say that with immense pride and gratitude because I know that a lot of people don't feel like that about their mothers. And she was just the best, the absolute best person that I think I, I believe I will ever know. My mom did so much to um, let me know that I was loved and to let me know I had boundless capacity and capability to be great and to be, and not great in the sense of like famous and successful, but great in the way that it meant to do something that was significant to the lives of other people. Mm. She will always talk about the power of one to change the world. Like that was, that was something that to this day, I think about like the power of one um, because she would always say that to me. Mm. She loved God with everything. I, and, and she was very devoted to the church and she was very deeply devoted to her family. I think sometimes to, to her own detriment because she also wanted love. And um, she was like a lot of black women who had suffered a lot of disappointments and heartbreaks and had longed for it, but also had given up on it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it became clearer even as she would push me not to give up on it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she, she longed for love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wish that she would have gotten to experience it the ways that she wanted out loud and, and be loved the way that she, she wanted it. But she taught me how to really love and care for people. She rescued me when I was in danger. She sacrificed for me when I needed it. And she got me together when I was a hot mess. And when I think about what a savior does mm. 
those are the things that a savior does. Right. So when people, so when I talked about like, if people were to ask us to describe God in human form to us, I do think it's going to look like the person who loves us, supports us, challenges us, holds us accountable, provides us correction. And, and in them and because of them, we are able to see the fullness of who we can be. Mm. I think for some people that might be their father. For some people that might be a sibling. It may be a teacher, you know, like it may be the pastor. It may be a cousin. It, sometimes I, I think about how beautiful it would be if we had to answer the question to describe God in human form and the person that, that we saw. And I think that that would, would one, reorient our understanding of God because Christ's birth is this moment of God literally coming down to earth. Like God is not in a bush anymore that you, that you have to look away and take your shoes. Like, you know, God is not, the essence of God is no longer in an ark that like, if you accidentally touch it, you will die. Like God is in this baby Mm. that is born in a man. You posted it Mm. and you were like the quote that said, that the mystery of Christ's birth is not that Jesus is like God, but that God is like mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. And, and when you posted it, I was like, that is, that's it. That's it. That God has come down to earth. That, that, that there is something powerful about that kind of intimacy okay. that I, that, so, yes, my mom, like like anybody that we would say God is like in human form has limitations and has messed up and has, you know, is not perfect and has done things that even they, she and they and everybody else that we would describe is not proud of. That's not the point. The point is, is that in all of the ways that we experience God's connection and God and understand God, we've experienced that in the intimate close connections of each other. Right. And that's the point, mm. right? That there's no more mediator. Mm. That that when I when I wake up and I say, God, I need to feel your presence, I need you to feel close to me. It can literally be my homegirl coming over and watching a movie and eating ice cream with me and we laughing. Mm. And so, yeah, like I, I recognize often God is that, that spirit dwells everywhere and that God is this ultimate supreme being. And then I also recognize that because Christ lives because Christ was born into this earth and because Christ still lives, that there is something that happens with divinity and human flesh 
that just cannot be explained mm. that still is happening with you with divine connection mm. that I don't limit mm. I refuse to limit and mm. I know that God is present in those moments and I allow myself to feel them yeah. and I think that if we were to open ourselves up to all the ways we've met God like Scripture talks about entertaining angels unknowingly. And that's true. That's true. We entertain. I mean, even Jesus says, you know, when you fed the hungry, when you clothed the like you did it to me. And in that same way, there have been moments in our life where we have encountered God. Mm. And the prayer, I think, for all of us or should be, is that how do we live in a way so that when people encounter us, mm. they are able to say the same? Yeah. Mm. And I think that's just where I am. Is that like, I'm not, some days I'm going to be a mess. Mm. And on those days when I wake up, like God, if, if God could tell you about how he peak, how God is moving and how I move in prayer, like there are days I'm like, okay, so God, I did a lot yesterday. So if you could just, <laughs> Tell me to kind of stay at like a four because I was at a 12. So I, I actually exceeded balance it out. <laughs> but like even even with all of that, I want people to be like. I encountered Candace, whether it was in person or through her work, and I was able to really rethink what it meant to be to be connected to God and how God moves closer to me. That's that's all I want. Right. That's all I want. And and my mom was that for so many people. And that's what she taught me. Um, and that's what I saw in her. And when it's time to be a mom, I want to pass that down too. Yeah. Yeah. Candice, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, this was this was great. This was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.